welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are here today at FabTech in Atlanta, Georgia, and we have uh, a live guest today, uh, Cindy Marsiglio. Marsiglio. I didn't want to get that wrong. <laughs> That's quite all right. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tim? Cindy, I understand you're going to give us an update on what Walmart is doing with manufacturing and this $250 billion initiative, which sounds quite exciting. Why don't you give us an idea of what Walmart's up to? Sure. Well, thank you. We're here at FabTech addressing uh, the, the group here today, at, like you mentioned, sharing our progress against the commitment uh, Walmart has made to purchase $250 billion more in U.S. made goods. Uh, we made that commitment in January of 2013, um, and coming up on about two years in, uh, we're really making great progress. Uh, we shared some uh, new products uh, that we're bringing into stores or have brought into stores and where we're focusing our efforts. So uh, that's $250 billion more than we were making in January of 2013. Um, so it's very exciting, and I'm happy to be here. Now, you've done some, are they symposiums or some kind of get-togethers with states, manufacturers pulling people together? Tell us about those. Sure. When we embarked on this commitment, we went to our suppliers and asked them what their primary challenges were to uh, expanding domestic production, whether that's making more of products they're already making here today or considering the U.S. And one of those challenges that they uh, brought to our attention was navigating the state and finding locations and, and figuring that out. Um, well, we decided to hold uh, um, uh, our first U.S. Manufacturing Summit last summer in Orlando. We invited our suppliers there and invited uh, the states to come and join us. Um, we had 34 states join us, their Departments of Commerce, their Secretaries of Commerce, their Economic Development Entities, and we, did, uh, we hosted more than 300 meetings uh, between our suppliers and the wow. state. Um, it was very exciting. It was a little bit like speed dating, but it gave our suppliers a chance to meet with um, many states of their requests um, and, and share what their needs were, what their workforce needs, their logistics needs, their infrastructure needs uh, with states who are competing for those manufacturing jobs. Uh, it was a great success. We held it again this past August in Denver, um, had more states show up and held even more meetings. Um, from those events, uh, large convenings of suppliers, um, we're seeing some really great uh, synergies and some great partnerships between some states and suppliers and new factories coming to life. When you mentioned the $250 billion, what is that in terms of additional jobs for in the United States? So we, let me, let me, we're doing this sort of three ways. I think it's a little helpful to level set. We are uh, purchasing more in U.S. made products from suppliers we're doing business with today. And about two-thirds of what we already source and sell at Walmart is made here in the U.S. Uh, so we're a very large grocer. A big portion of that is food and consumables and health and wellness type products. So our team is focused on that remaining third. Um, we're also approaching this by trying to find new U.S.-made products from new companies, 
And then the third piece of that is where it makes sense so working with our suppliers to reshore. And we've been working with Boston Consulting Group. They've been uh, a good partner with us since the beginning. And their estimation okay. is that our commitment that to purchase $250 billion more in U.S.-made products could result in a million more U.S. Wow. jobs. And that's really what this is all about. Impressive. Impressive. You mentioned this morning in your presentation, uh, your keynote uh, presentation, you talked about a bike manufacturer. Could you tell our listeners about that story? I'm happy to. I'm happy to. They are a great example of one of the the first movers in this space. Um, there's a, a, a company we've done business with for years, Kent International. They're a large bike manufacturer. Arnold Kamler is their CEO. He's a great partner with Walmart. Um, Arnold makes bikes um, uh, across the globe and wanted to bring some production to the U.S. Um, he makes bikes for Walmart as well as uh, other retailers. Um, Arnold met, in fact, um, uh, many states at that initial summit and chose to uh, find a location in Go South on. Carolina, uh, a wonderful little community, Manning, uh, South Carolina, in Clarendon County. I was just there a few weeks ago, and, and Arnold has really taken some risks. He has um, opened up a bike assembly factory. Uh, they're 20-inch, they're kids' bikes, so boys' and girls' bikes. Um, where we will be putting those new bikes in our Walmart stores, 2,200 of our Walmart stores, in January. And that will be the first time that we'll have a mass-produced bike in Walmart in over a decade uh, from the U.S. So really wow. exciting. That's great. How many stores are there in, in the U.S.? So we, in fact, just last week in a small town in central Arkansas, opened up our 5,000th location. Wow. So those are... Super centers, neighborhood markets, express stores, okay. a variety of formats to meet uh, our customers' needs. Um, but we continue to grow um, in the U.S. as well as abroad. I'll bet you had the press there. <laughs> it, was, it was exciting. These are, uh, that, that was a very small community, but it was a, it was a great milestone for us. Uh, we are a global company operating in 27 countries today, um, but there's still a lot of opportunity to ensure that we're taking care of our customers no matter, no matter what right. Cindy, I'm a, I'm a big Walmart shopper with my family. Great. Uh, and we love the store. Now, how are you making it easier for the consumer to recognize the product made in America? You know, we've, we, we know from our customers that where products are made are important to her. Um, so, in fact, it's second to price. Uh, it's important, uh, she tells us, that retailers carry products made or assembled here in the U.S. So everything from um, consumable products to uh, items for your children or items for your pet, uh, anything uh, sort of in this is global as well, uh, has, that, has that quality um, perception um, is important. And so we're working with our suppliers to ensure that it's easy for our customers to find products yeah. that are made or sold in the U.S., primarily through their packaging. Um, I think if you walk uh -huh. through stores today, you would see that through the direct packaging, bring yeah, it to the front. Five. We're giving them some, some uh, uh, guidelines and some suggestions. Um, and it's a little different for every, every company, every supplier, and it's really up to them. We're encouraging them, again, make it easy. Get it on the front, and anything we can do to help identify those you know products, I think will be great for the customer. On the outside here. Not too long ago, we Nail. had a guest on our yeah, show from a group called Nine Sigma, a Dr. Eloise Young, and she was talking about open innovation. Mm -hmm. You know, looking outside your own box and your own network for solutions. Yeah. I understand you have some of your manufacturers, some of your suppliers, beginning to use synergies between them. Is that right? What's going on there? You know, it's been it's been 
fascinating. One of the things that uh, these past couple of summits has, has showed us is if we can convene the right groups together, um, really great partnerships can form. And many of our suppliers, not only do they make finished products, uh, toys and the like for, for Walmart and other retailers to sell, but they can also uh, make component parts for others. I gave a great example uh, this morning of a toy company who also can make plastic component parts for others. So we're getting suppliers, talking to other suppliers, connecting them with states, connecting them with the resources, and helping them identify what supply chain options are available in the U.S. today. How many suppliers does Walmart have in the U.S.? Many. In fact, <laughs> More than one. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I like to always, um, you know, reinforce that there's a lot of different yeah, ways uh, companies can supply to Walmart. Certainly, we have very large brands that support our entire portfolio, both in-store and online, as well as Sam's Club. But we do quite a bit of, of regional purchases um, and tests. In fact, uh, I mentioned our open call event this morning to you as well, where we invited uh, new U.S suppliers to, to bring us their U.S. made products. So we can we can do 50 stores, 500 stores, and we want to make sure that we can uh, collaborate with our suppliers to ensure that we can grow uh, where their products are uh, are working in our, in our stores. Our customers have demand for them, and it doesn't have to just be all or nothing. There's many different ways you can supply to Walmart. Now, I know that you're always looking for new suppliers, and you all mentioned you know, through all now. of these efforts that you're trying to bring in suppliers. But I also know there's a some sort of a reticence Make to, sure they're all on. to deal with when Walmart. You know, they're just big. And how do you get started? How do you get started? Well, I'll go back to, again, there's many different ways, depending upon what you're making and what your capacity abilities are today. Um, today, you can go to Walmart, our corporate website. In fact, I shared with you our new jobs in U.S. manufacturing portal, so I'll share it here with your listeners. It's Great. very simple, walmart-jump, J-U-M-P, Dot com And that's a new jobs in U.S. manufacturing portal well, where, one, it's, it's kind of a 24-7 open call. It's an opportunity to uh, pitch new products to us, a way for us to uh, uh, keep everyone informed on the progress that we're making, that our suppliers are making. And it's a great place to learn about what it is like and, and what your options are to be a supplier to Walmart. So I would encourage everyone to, to go there, register, and uh, there's great resources made available um, today. What's up, is it uh, difficult for a new supplier to become an approved supplier? Yeah. We want to make it as easy as possible. Uh, you know, it's important to get products to the shelf and even the virtual shelf quickly. Um, so through our stores, either Walmart, Sam's Club, or .com, um, we want to be able to assist our suppliers in any way we can, particularly when, like many of those products that came to open call, they're really innovative products that we know our customers will want. So we're motivated to get them on our shelves quickly. Yeah, that's that, great. That's now like you had mentioned that you enjoy visiting, the, is it the manufacturing facilities who, that are actually the facilities for Walmart, is that right? I do. Um, I, you know, I think um, those who make uh, purchasing decisions in our company are, are always collaborating with our suppliers and always uh, learning, negotiating, and partnering with our suppliers. And part of that is uh, visiting their factories. Um, my team's gotten the pleasure of seeing some of these newer factories come to life. So Kent Bike, um, Element TV. Here in Georgia, there's some wonderful partners 
who are growing their existing facilities um, and creating more. So Mohawk Rugs, uh, just just down here in Hazelhurst, Elon Polo for shoes, 1888 Mills, a, a towel manufacturer for us. So they're really across the U.S. And anytime I can get into a, a factory and uh, and uh, learn about the products they're making for us, uh, particularly when they're new, and meet those new um, excited employees there, uh, it's it's very rewarding. Cindy, we know that you uh, have to run, and I, we appreciate the time that you've given us. Is there a closing? comment that you'd like to make to our listeners before you head off to your next meeting? Well, I, thank you, and thank you for having me. It, it's just a great opportunity for me to share with you um, one way that Walmart, as a retailer, um, who, who don't, we don't make anything, um, what we can do to sort of uh, lean in and, and support our suppliers to address uh, and look for opportunities to consider domestic manufacturing. It's a really great business decision for us shorten supply chain, get the right products on our shelves when our customers want it. We know our customers really want it, uh, and it's a really great community impact uh, initiative for us. So it's a winner, and thank you for having us. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for being at the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open-die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, I want to welcome our listeners back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're broadcasting from FabTech, which is at the Georgia World Congress Center here in Atlanta, Georgia. And you are probably hearing a fair amount of uh, noise in the background. And that's because they have every manner of metal machine here for fabricating and cutting and bending and welding that I didn't even know this kind of stuff existed. Fascinating things they can do. We're talking with Greg Dawson of Nordson Corporation. His company does powder coating. And I'm I'm wandering around the studio trying to figure out what can I bring over and get powder coated, Greg. And it's not going to be my cell phone, although that might be cool. You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, last year's Fabtech show, uh, toward the end of the show, you know, it slows down that last day, and and that's exactly what happened. Everybody from the other booth started bringing stuff down, and we were powder coating keychains, and we were powder coating door stops, and 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 all the team colors that they wanted. So that was pretty much what we did the last half of the show last year. But now I'm going to have to bring in my college uh, alma mater stuff and get. Something powder coated. <laughs> Great. Now I'm assuming you can also do um, uh, designs, logos, that kind of thing. Is that correct? Traditionally, powder coating is going to be a solid color. Mm-hmm. Um, now you can get it in a vein. You mentioned the silver earlier, a chrome look. You can get that. Right. Uh, those are all somewhat uh, solid colors. Um, there are companies that have done some blending where you start off with one color and it fades into another color. That's all, That's not the norm, but you can play around and, and get effects like that. Okay. Um, 
but traditionally it's going to be a solid color or it's going to be a clear with a tint placed into it. So our logo wouldn't do well? With... No, unless we tried to do the bumblebee look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's the most unusual application you've seen, Greg, in your 26 years of working with Nordson? Yeah. Um, early in my career, probably the most unusual was toilet seats, um, wooden toilet seats. Uh, you would think, where do they all go? 30,000 toilet seats per shift. <laughs> right. And wow. they were all powder-coated, and they were MDF wood. And this was many years ago. This was 20 years ago. Um, but that's exactly what they did. And, and you ask yourself, where do those all go? But every hotel, uh, you think about all the all the restrooms all around, and they all have toilet seats that have to re be replaced. So I would say that's definitely the most unique application. And would those be wood or plastic? Though? Those were wood. Those were M MDF wood. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's, and then how many years ago was that? Probably 20 years ago. Wow. And you did say 30,000 a shift? Yes, sir. That's a lot of toilet seats. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> India might have some uh, benefit uh, with that uh, information. Well, you know, we're looking at, uh, I imagine just walking around the show floor. I mean, there's a, there's a hoist over here. How do you powder coat and heat up these very, large parts. I'm thinking of Caterpillar something or other, you know, big yeah. stuff. Yeah, and, and Caterpillar certainly is one of the ace market that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, they do large products. Um, there's, We don't handle this end of it, but there's different curing methods. You can put a large part into a convection oven, much, much the way you would bake a cake, and you put it in there and let the heat get into the part over the course of typically 375 degrees for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. But if you've got a large caterpillar part, it's going to take a really long time for that heat sink uh, to get up to temperature. So there's other methods of heating up. There's infrared technology. Um, you know, there's just certainly other ways to get heat into a mass of metal. Mm -hmm. And you have those type of furnaces to do that? Uh, we don't provide the furnace part of it or the oven part of it. We, we work very closely with what we call systems houses, and the systems houses do the oven washer conveyor portion of the system, and then Nordson comes in and does the booth and the application part of it, the precision dispensing part of it. Okay. If, if our listeners want to get in touch with Nordson, how would they do that? Well, you certainly go to the uh, internet and type in www.nordson.com. Uh, you'll see a list of all of our product lines. Uh, uh, you can certainly contact um, my division, Industrial Coating Division, at 1-800-321-2881. Um, be glad to help you in any way we can. Very good. Anything else that you would like to share with our listeners, Greg, as we kind of wrap up this segment uh, before we uh, bring on our next guest here at Fabtech that you haven't gone over already with us? Um, the only thing I guess I would share with you guys is, like I said earlier, it is a really exciting time to be in powder coating. Um, I mentioned some of the new technologies that have come out. Uh, another one of the new technologies is this dry-on-dry dry powder, where we're actually spraying a base coat powder and then a top coat powder and curing them together without an intermediate cure. Um, so that's an interesting development. There's cark coatings that have come out. Um, that's a military application for chemical agent-resistant coatings, um, that's going to be a huge market coming up, and, and it's always been just a, a primer 
and then a liquid top coat. Where we're, we're getting to that point now where it's going to be a primer and top coating powder. Uh, so those are just really, it's just really interesting time to be in powder. Um, there's, there's almost nothing that we turn away anymore as a bad project. There, we think we can do them all. We've been talking about uh, the reshoring and how the manufacturing is coming back to the United States. And uh, Actually, we, we learned just today that the United States is now number two in terms of lower cost countries. Is your process a inexpensive process? compared to the way it used to be with uh, painting a product and all of the intricacies and manufacturing difficulty of doing that? Uh, generally, if you run the numbers, and there's certainly plenty of calculators out there to figure these things out, but if you run the numbers, um, powder coating is going to end up being cheaper than a mixed solvent liquid type application in, in most cases. So mm -hmm. it's, it's absolutely the economical way to go. It's the environmental way to go. Um, you know, as far as the reshoring, there's a lot of talent here in the U.S. Um, that know how to powder coat. Um, a lot of companies out there willing to help you and get out there in the trenches with you. So um, you know, I think the future is actually pretty good for us uh, being a U.S.-based company here. Craig, what are you seeing in terms of uh, new people coming in to your industry? You're not quite as gray as I am. So you've still got a, a couple of uh, years left and a much longer runway ahead of you. But what about the millennials, the 18 to 32 year olds? Are they gravitating toward powder coating? I um, actually work in several capacities with different industries. Mm -hmm. I, I speak a lot. Uh, I am still relatively young. I've been in the industry for a long time, but I started very young. And one of the things we always struggle with is how do you make manufacturing sexy? How do you right. how do you make it compete with a um, a technology job or Silicon Valley or something like that. And we're doing that now. We're, we're doing these training classes and we're showing people that you can make a great career in manufacturing. Um, and, and, the, and the people we talk to, the people that I've hired recently, are much younger kids that are excited about manufacturing again. So I, I definitely think uh, uh, you'll see that. that the kids are coming back to manufacturing. Um, it is it is not a glamorous, but it's certainly going to be uh, an industry that you're going to provide for your family and you're going to be secure by doing that. The trick is that we have to make it look cool and sexy. Well, your blazers are certainly doing that. <laughs> well, I think in terms of, you know, if people want to challenge, and a lot of a lot of kids go into programming because it's a challenge to try to create a program that works where you've, you've created a game, which I, obviously you'd like to sell a billion copies of to make a lot of money, but in manufacturing, manufacturing is always full of, of problems to be solved. And I think that's probably what you're seeing in these young kids. Am I right? That they're looking for the opportunity to solve a problem, a puzzle. Right. And, and the opportunities are there. You talk about programming. All of our equipment now, the days of the knobs and dials, they're gone. Everything's done with touch screens. Everything's done with computers. And, and the, the kids that I've hired recently, and I call them kids because they're 25 years old, right. they jump up there and they start pushing buttons right away and, and they solve problems. Um, that, that more senior guys um, are a little bit more hesitant to go up there and start you know, pushing the buttons. But uh, there's certainly opportunities for anybody that's got um, that type of intellect with the, with the computers to jump over here and, and have fun with it. Well, you make an interesting point because right behind us in another booth, there is there are a couple of saws, and I don't know what they go through, but they look like they go through some serious stuff. And attached to both of those devices is an iPad. 
there are no knobs, there are no switches. It's an iPad driving that machinery. And I bet if we walk this show floor, we'll, we'll see that all over Fabtech. Is that the kind of thing that you're seeing out there? Yes, yeah, certainly. Certainly so. Um, just about everything on our equipment now is is, is some type of software, software driven. And like I said, the, the, the kids that we're bringing in now, they're just not afraid of it. Mm-hmm. To just go up there and start pushing the buttons and turning the knobs and, or, or, or scrolling through the screens and messing with stuff. Well, you certainly experience that. I experience it anytime my smartphone, which is much smarter than I am, gives me a problem. I simply hand it to my daughter and tell her, Fix, make it do whatever it's supposed to do because it's not doing it. And she hands it back to me 15 seconds later and it's done. It probably would have taken me about a week to figure that out. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, we sure appreciate having you on the show. Uh, you've certainly given us a lot of great information. If anybody is listening who wants to still get over to Atlanta and see FabTech, I'm sure there's still time to register for the show and scoot in here. By the way, Greg, what booth are you at in building A or B or C, if you know? Otherwise, you can look at the show guide and you can find uh, Nordson Corporation because this is a, a huge, huge show. I tell you this, if they find your booth, I'm as far away from here as possible. I'm in the exact other end. We're down B078 or something of that nature. But you'll find us. We have a gigantic, large Norton logo hanging up over the booth, and you'll find us. But we're as far away from your booth as we can we can possibly be in the same building. <laughs> and these buildings are long. I will tell you, walking from the front door to our booth is 0.62 miles. No joke. I have an app to measure it. So we had quite a walk. Greg, thank you for being on the show. We're going to take a commercial break. We'll be back in a minute or two minutes, um, and Lou and I will give you another update on what's happening at Fabtech. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. It's no secret that manufacturers are having trouble filling jobs. Now, with ThomasNet's new job board, help is on the way. For manufacturers, thomasnetjobs.com is the go-to resource to recruit new talent. Post your jobs and get in front of thousands of potential employees. Or, if you're looking for a new job or you want to reinvent yourself, thomasnetjobs.com offers exciting opportunities from the shop floor to the C-suite in supply chain management, engineering, production, or sales. Remember, thomasnetjobs.com. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open-die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. When you use 
the Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, the rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit axpgold.com. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at axpgold.com. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, this is Lou Weiss of Manufacturing Talk Radio, along with uh, Tim Grady, my co-host. And we're down here in the sunny Atlanta, Georgia, at the FabTech show with 35,000 other people and about 1,500 <laughs> exhibitors. And uh, we have a gentleman uh, that we're going to be talking to in just a moment. Uh, Tim, would you like to do the intro? Sure. Uh, Bill Gaskin is president of the uh, Precision Metal Forming Association. And in a moment, I'm going to ask Bill exactly what that means. But I will tell you this, at Fabtech, they have some machinery here that I, I've never seen at a, a trade show. I've been to trade shows where they, you know, about the largest thing I saw was an automated teller machine. And I think the machines here would eat that for breakfast. So, uh, Bill, welcome to the show. Give us a little idea of... Uh, of what PMA is. Thank you for being here. Uh, Tim, thanks very much. And Lou, thanks for having me on today. Uh, you know, you talk about a uh, teller machine, automatic teller machine. Well, you wouldn't have that automatic teller machine if you didn't have all the machinery that's in this building today. From stamping presses, which is what Precision Metal Forming Association is about, along with precision sheet metal and lasers and turret presses, all the welding that's over in the AWS pavilion, and the finishing that you couldn't have a nice looking ATM without is down in the finishing pavilion. So, you know, you've got everything except the electronics here, but there's tons of electronics here because of course machine tools are operated by electronics today. So anyway, it's a fantastic show and thanks for the opportunity to be involved in this uh, program today. PMA is the trade association that represents the, the uh, Precision Sheet Metal Fabricating Association in North America, so the companies in North America. Our members are metal stampers, precision sheet metal fabricators, roll formers, metal spinners, uh, companies that take flat rolled metal and form it into parts, components, assemblies, and in some cases end products, but it all ends up, of course, in things that are made throughout the world. Uh, we export to every country in the world uh, metal parts and assemblies, and, uh, and so without this, we don't have manufactured goods. I understand... Uh from your, your bio that uh, the industry is a $113 billion industry and growing. Yeah, it sure is. It's a $113 billion segment of our economy of manufacturing in America. And I wish they were all members. They aren't, unfortunately, <laughs> but, but we have 860 member companies uh, throughout North America. And, uh, and they're a good piece of that. They, they serve the automotive industry. That's about 40% of the market. Uh, and then uh, agriculture, off-highway, telecommunications, appliance, uh, electronics industries, uh, just about everything, toys and trucks, all have metal parts and assemblies. Well, I'm going to ask you for your URL address so listeners can uh, run and join. Well, PMA is pretty easy. It's pma.org. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's an easy, easy website to find. We publish Metal Forming Magazine, which reaches out to 52,000 readers every month, talking about the technology in our industry. We also publish Fabricating Product News, which is a, 
a publication that covers new developments in the precision sheet metal fabricating industry and is read by more than 16,000 every month. Well, let's do an infomercial, Bill. What uh, what does PMA bring to its members, and why should all these folks be members? And they probably should at PMA. Yeah, PMA is all about three things, really. It's it's networking, learning, and leading. So when we talk about PMA, we say we're the organization that helps the industry network, learn, lead. So the networking part comes in, in a variety of ways to become engaged in the association. We have 16 local chapters throughout the country, population areas where there's lots of manufacturing, and there's plenty of local meetings and opportunities to get to know your competitors, get to know your suppliers, or your vendors, and to learn from each other. Uh, we have technology divisions, eight of them. Uh, those are you know, universal across the country and in Canada and Mexico as well. Uh, but they focus on stamping, precision sheet metal fabricating, lasers, turrets, uh, press brake type work, also uh, roll forming and, and metal spinning and some other technologies. Uh, and then uh, we have a committee structure focusing on industry issues, um, all of which are tied into this networking uh, banner. Uh, the learning portion comes with all that we do with the, the uh, skills issue that we have today. Mm -hmm. uh, back in uh, the late 90s, uh, um, PMA and several other trade associations banded together to form the National Institute for Metalworking Skills, NIMS. Uh, and NIMS is the organization that developed the skill standards and credentialing systems for machinists and tool and die makers, operators of, of uh, automatic uh, metal forming machines, uh, stamping presses, press brakes, and, and some uh, uh, turret punch presses as well. Uh, and that provides an underpinning for a competency-based training system, which we really need in the U.S. You know, the, the traditional apprenticeship programs in, in many industries, including ours, tool and die and machinists, have become much less popular over the last 20 years. Um, kids kind of lost interest in some of these manufacturing industries. Mm -hmm. But there's a resurgence there, and there are more people realizing that these are great jobs. But the younger people particularly tend to rebel against the, you know, the time-based learning. Uh, so a tool and die apprenticeship historically has been a four-year process, 2,000 hours of academic and, and uh, 6,000 hours of in-plant type effort over a four-year period. Well, four years if you're 20 or 21 or 25 is a long time, right? <laughs> right. So, so they're really interested in something that's competency-based. I mean, hey, let me prove to you I can do it. Let me learn the material and let me move on. If I can do it in you know, a year and a half or two years, I want to do it that fast. So that's what NIMS is all about. It's all about breaking the responsibilities of a tool and die maker or a machinist or a press operator or a press setup person down into chunks of technology, knowledge, skills, and competencies, teaching it to them in bite-sized pieces and letting them demonstrate through in, you know, projects and, and, and check tests that they know the material. Once they know it, then they should be able to move on. So we think it's a new, you know, a new format, really, for a whole new population of people that need to get involved in these industries. Of, of the 600,000 uh, vacant jobs in this country, what portion of that would be for the metal stamping, metal forming industry? Well, it's tough to know exactly. I yeah, mean, the 600,000 manufacturing jobs that are available is, a, is really a real number. Uh, you know, 25, 30 percent certainly involve metal. Uh, because every manufactured product has metal and, right. and uh, sheet metal, particularly also forgings and castings and other technologies. But 
uh, but it's probably 25% of those. Rather significant yeah, number. Lots of opportunities. Now, Bill, when you talk about this uh, competency-based learning, which I find fascinating, by the way, because I think it's the way the educational system is going to have to go in this country. Instead of grades K through 12, I think it's going to have to shift to a competency-based learning system when once you know the material, you move on. How did uh, PMA come up with that? Well, PMA didn't come up with it alone, of course. There's uh, plenty of researchers in the educational arena. Uh, and what we did was come together with several other trade associations, AMT, the Machine Tool Building Association, the National Tooling and Machining Association, the Precision Machine Products Association, which is screw machine industry, and the Tooling and Manufacturing Association in, uh, uh, in Chicago, which is a regional machining association, and the Forging Industry Association to, to collaborate and, and form NIMS as an entity and then quickly realize that this is about competency. It's not about time. And, and so it wasn't some great invention, competency-based training has been talked about for years. Hmm. What was new was that we brought together, for example, in a machining uh, level one, level two, level three that you have, uh, we brought together machinists from all around the U.S., samples, maybe 15, 20 people, for a three-day session where they worked with a facilitator to identify the knowledge, skills, and competencies that as a machining machinist level one, level two, or a tool and die maker, level one, level two, level three, press operator, same principles, we learned the skills, competence, and knowledges they need to, needed to have at each level. Then it's a matter of developing the curriculum that you're, is required to, to teach it. And, and along the way, uh, NIMS also designed a a certification program for schools that want to adopt the, the training method, the competency-based training method, mm -hmm. to assure that they have input from manufacturers, that this isn't just an academic process, it's a process where you've got real employers involved and engaged on advisory boards locally because all training is local, you know, it all has to happen locally. Mm -hmm. So there was not a new concept, but, but what we did do for the first time was pull it together for, for metalworking. Well, I like the way you've kind of summed up what the organization does, networking, learning, leading. Yeah, and I never really finished that. I, I kind of got diverted. I was in the middle of learning, and we got into the, the NIMS. Uh, we also do about 20, 25 seminars every year on technical areas like um, uh, die setting and uh, die maintenance, uh, die design, uh, deep drawing, uh, quality management, all sorts of skills that are just needed by our existing workforce. And, and we do some signature programs to try to advance the technology and knowledge in the automotive industry, uh, in sales and marketing skills, of course, which are essential for all manufacturers, and, and in other areas. Mm -hmm. And then there's the leading portion, so it's network, learn, lead. The leading portion has a lot to do with, uh, with, with Washington, D.C., where, where we certainly have a, a few concerns that uh, uh, sometimes the people in Washington don't fully understand the importance of manufacturing. And, and how if they did a better job of leading in Washington, uh, we really could have a much better manufacturing economy. And that's one of our missions is to help that happen. I'm waiting, not, I'm waiting not for Lou's comment here. <laughs> not that I want to pick on Washington. And we don't use names and we don't, we don't uh, do a full frontal attack. But what would you like to see happen in Washington in regards to them getting uh, more involved in uh, the, the manufacturing sector? 
Well, what we really need from Washington is leadership. Uh, we, we need decisions made so company owners and investors in companies and managers of companies can plan intelligently their strategy for capital acquisition, which is what this show is all about. You've got to buy expensive new machines mm -hmm. if you're going to be a modern manufacturer. So they've got to have uh, stability and knowledge. What are the tax laws? How quickly can I depreciate this machine? Right. Are there any investment tax credits? Is there rapid depreciation? Well, right now we're sitting in a place where all those taxes, all those opportunities to avoid taxes or to get tax help and you know, and buying new equipment are all in abeyance. We don't know what the rules are yet for 2014. So here we sit in November and, and some member of mine is making a decision to buy a million dollar stamping machine and he doesn't know how fast he can depreciate that. He doesn't know if he's going to get bonus depreciation on it. He doesn't know what the investment tax credit is going to be on that machine. And, and, and we're in November. Uh, now hopefully in the next couple of weeks Congress will reassemble and they will pass what they call tax extenders, which would say, okay, well, let's take all these, there's 60 of them, different tax extenders, and approve them for 2014, now that it's November. And, and oh, <laughs> by the way, hopefully they will do it for 2015 as well. So we'll have, you know, one-year lookout and, and 10 months look back. That's just not useful. Uh, we we got to have stability, and we've got to have the ability to plan to grow our companies. Well, you seem to have the answers. How come Washington doesn't, or is that a whole other show? <laughs> I'm sure it's about ten more shows, and it probably has more to do with politics than anything else. And unfortunately, that gets in the way. Yeah. So that's one area. The other area is regulations, of course. Uh, well, that's the second area. Uh, there, you know, there are an awful lot of new regulatory requirements that are imposed on manufacturers every year. Some 26,000 pages of federal regulations get issued every year, uh, and and that, too, creates uncertainty. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we were in a situation where, um, you know, we've had a pretty stable situation with noise in the workplace for quite, quite some time, about 25 years. And, and the basic guidance was, look, people operating machines can't lose their hearing. They've got to have machines that either operate below certain noise levels or they've got to wear earmuffs and earplugs and or take time away from the machines, be rotated, so they're not exposed to certain levels of noise for more than a certain period of time every day. Pretty simple. Um, and then about three years ago, um, this administration made a decision to change the definition of the word feasible in the noise regulation. And suddenly, the metalworking industry was threatened with the idea that you not had not only had the option, no, that you didn't have the option anymore of just protecting people with earmuffs and earplugs and rotating them and and checking their hearing every year to make sure nobody was losing their hearing, you had to demonstrate that that uh, that you could uh, it, that it was not feasible to, to lower the noise. So companies were going to have to spend tens of thousands of dollars for a small company, millions for a big company, to hang baffles in the ceiling, to put pads up on the walls, to enclose machines, to try to make these machines quieter, uh, for no real net effect for the employee because employees don't you know, aren't losing their hearing in a good company that has people wear the proper personal protective devices. But it's another example of a regulation that Washington suddenly, you know, somebody decided to change things. Now, the good news with that one is that, that in the, in the uh, effort that President Obama had a few years ago to streamline regulations, that one went away real quick. It just happened to disappear. We think it was partly because we were making some noise about that noise regulation. 
it, it's interesting that, uh, and we're hearing about it in the news, we're hearing it here at the show, and everyone's talking about reshoring and the fact that we're, uh, the country is becoming more competitive. So there's business coming back to the United States, but yet Washington isn't buying into this. And uh, you know, we had a, a midterm, midterm election that uh, uh, went in the direction that it did. Uh, has that helped the cause at all? Well, we'll see see how we feel about that in two years, right? I, I guess. Uh, but but yeah, I, I think so. Uh, you know, the election certainly was a um, referendum on the current policies and the current politics and some of the probably current public issues that are out there now. And I think the you know hopefully the message that will will uh, arrive in Washington along with all the new congressmen and a and a different mix of uh, of, of representatives, particularly and senators, that gives the Republicans an opportunity to lead the both houses of Congress, uh, there will be a more um, rational and effective approach uh, that they will make decisions uh, and, and reach across the aisle to the president and work to come up with solutions to issues like I mentioned before, all the tax issues, some of these regulatory issues. If the U.S. is going to compete in the global economy, and, and by gosh, we can compete, uh, we have technology like nobody else. We have people that are dedicated to working hard and earning their money every day to make great products. Uh, what we have to do is pull together and you know and get out there. Reshoring is you know is a fact. I, I have plenty of member companies who have noted in the last two to three years and and increasingly this year that they are getting jobs back that they used to run or similar jobs that they used to run three, four, five, six years ago. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to ship metal parts from China to the U.S. or from the U.S. to China, for that matter, uh, because it's metal parts. It's, you know, it's made up of the cost is probably 50 to 60 percent the cost of the steel or the aluminum or the copper that it's made with. And the rest is labor and, and, and finishing efforts to, to make the component. It doesn't make any sense to ship that around the world. It should be made where the products are made. Along with the uh, the cost of shipping it, and the cost of uh, your freight forwarders and trucking and so on. It's, uh, it's very and we're a highly automated uh, manufacturing uh, society here in the U.S. Very sophisticated processes, and and we can outcompete anybody in the world. Tim? Yeah. Well, you've certainly given us a great deal of information. Uh, Bill, all of the places that you've been, all of the members that you've worked with. What are you hearing in terms of this transition from the gray hairs to the millennials? I mean, we hear that it's a significant struggle. Is it, in fact, as significant as we're hearing? Well, that's a that's a multi-level issue, like everything. But it, <laughs> it, it's a challenge. I mean, you have a couple issues. First, there, the workforce in manufacturing companies today is aging. Uh, many people who are in manufacturing uh, entered. Uh, after World War II, and, and, and they're the sons and daughters of those that started companies in, in world, you know, after World War II in the late 40s and 50s. And, and the sons and daughters are now in their late 50s and 60s. And, and so there's you know, that ownership level where, where you've got a lot of middle market companies where they have second generation, sometimes third generation involved. And once in a while, seventh or eighth generation, of course. <laughs> right. Um, and and they're all looking and wondering what's the next generation going to do. I mean, do they want to put up with the government regulation? Do they want to put up with the uncertainties? 
have they become doctors and lawyers and accountants because they went to college unlike their parents or you know and became professionals so so there there's going to be a big transition among middle market manufacturing companies in the next 10 years um, many will be sold to venture capital companies companies that want to uh, you know want to grow and, and be owners uh, not family businesses but but closely held companies others will be consolidated into larger entities so there will be a lot of transition um, and it'll be a very interesting period to see just what that dynamic is the second issue of course in aging in companies are the workers themselves where the workers are getting older and so you've got a lot of tool and die makers a lot of machinists a lot of skilled people who have been at companies for 40 and 50 years or in their 60s and they're ready to retire and that's where we need those 18 to 35 year olds getting back into manufacturing and and that kind of would take us full circle with some of the needs for training um, and skills development some of the european countries like germany for example uh, they've more or less cultivated the technique of uh, uh, apprenticeship training uh, that's nothing that actually ever caught on here or was uh, created here is that is that something that you would look at as a possibility to uh, in regards to the millennials if they were uh, if they did if we did have apprenticeship training in this country well we have apprenticeship training in this country uh, it's just not nearly as robust as it is in Europe right in Germany particularly there is a tradition that in upper high school there are decisions made you, you can go to technical schools you can go on to university and the society there accepts it uh, that's just part of their culture and it's true in other countries as well in the US we're the old rugged individualists right we all want to determine our own destiny and 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 we and we want kids to have choice so we don't have that same system where we do testing that guides somebody into a manufacturing program or a or a, a you know a worker oriented program as opposed to an academic program which Germany really does still have right. Um, so um, I don't think well we have lots of apprenticeship programs uh, as I've already said earlier in our program I think that the competency based NIMS approach to credentials and certifications will help bolster uh, the number of people that go into manufacturing in the next few years because I think the the patience for a time-based apprenticeship that starts probably in the junior year of high school is just something that's not there in the US it just doesn't right. fit with our our culture and our, our outlook on life. I think we're going to take a commercial break. Uh, we'll be back in a minute, minute and a half or so. So we're in there. Back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800 600-9290. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, 
construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're back. And uh, we have uh, Bill Gaskin of the Precision Metal Forming Association. And uh, we're at the Fabtech Show in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we are talking about uh, what's going on here in America in terms of uh, the metal working, metal forming industries. Uh, Tim? Uh, Bill, so you've certainly shared a lot of great information about PMA, and, and I really appreciate that for our listeners because very often, at least to my ears, what I hear is PMA, and I guess I can always go to the website and decipher what that means, but the more information that our listeners can have about an organization, what it does, the industry it helps, I think is an enormous help, particularly to those folks that are the up-and-comers who are going to replace us. What do you see happening in trade schools? That's kind of drifted away in America, and now it's becoming kind of like restoring. We hope it's coming back. Is that what you're seeing? I, I think there's every opportunity to bring back more trade-oriented schools. Um, you know, there are great careers and great jobs available in all sorts of manufacturing occupations. I, I happen to focus on the sheet metal fab mm-hmm. section because that's that's what PMA does. But you can go to rubber manufacturing, plastics, injection molding, forging, uh, casting, all sorts of technologies, including, you know, the traditional carpenters and electricians and and all of that. Great jobs for people that have hands-on skills and orientation toward customer service. They understand what it takes to get up at 6 in the morning and be at work and show up every day and make parts, make products, and and go home and live a good life uh, with a fair wage and and, and reliable uh, employment. You know, I think that's the story that the younger people today need to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one reason why show partners led by the FMA, Fabricating Manufacturers Association, and a few others started Manufacturing Day four years ago. You know, it's that first Friday in October where they, they promote the idea of bring people into your company, bring students into your company. PMA supported that for the last four years. We've had uh, dozens of our companies host, um, host employees uh, to come in. And, um, I mean, host students to come in to visit with their employees and understand what they do. And I think those are the sorts of things that will help change our, our current situation. I, I think that, you know, younger people today are, are hungry uh, for stability and jobs that are rewarding and jobs that will pay them enough to live the way they'd like to live and, and enjoy what they want to live. And I think manufacturing is a perfect place to do that. I remember when I was in... Uh high school, and we had shop classes, metal mm-hmm. shop, wood shop. They don't have that anymore. Is that something that we should be looking for the school system to re-implement to get the kids off into that direction of manufacture? Well, that would be an interesting situation. You know, one of the one of the old, uh, I guess, rules of the road is you can't go back again, right? Uh, I, I don't think we're going to see shop classes in, in every high school and, you know, in every every area of the country again. It's just too expensive. We can't find the instructors, the teachers to teach it anymore. 
Um, but, but I think we do have an opportunity on a regional basis in every metropolitan area to have community colleges and coalitions of high schools that do have vocational education programs still. And, and there are lots of them all around the country. Um, and they're getting more visibility and they're getting more students today. So I, I took wood shop and made the lamp, you know, when I was <laughs> right. a, a kid. And, I and that's great, you know, and, and, uh, and it, was, it was fun. I enjoyed it. But, but I don't think we'll see that. I think today the education is so fast moving and, you know, and it's all digital and the, the students just need to learn so many things that we just aren't going to see that again. But that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to do it in the community. And, in fact, there's a requirement that we do it in the community because this, you know, education, all education is local. It cannot happen in Washington. It can't happen in the state house. It's got to happen in the local community. Right. So what works in, you know, Anoka, Minnesota, and what works in Cleveland, Ohio, and what works someplace else is going to be slightly different. It's a different mix of people and of schools and, and of, and of interested parties. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to be wrapping up in a moment or so, uh, Bill. Is there any final words that you would like to pass on to our listeners and uh, the guests here at uh, FabTech? Well, I think I just summarized by saying that Precision Metal Farming Association is all about uh, helping our member companies make the best possible products for their customers in the most innovative way. Uh, and we believe that we've got to get more people involved in manufacturing, that the U.S. needs to be a manufacturing-based economy, uh, and, that, uh, and that the future is very, very bright. So I'd like to thank uh, Tim, you, and, and Lou for having me on today. It's been a great opportunity. Sure thing. And we'll, we'll pass the word on to Washington. Good deal. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll speak to our listeners to tell them to get out there and join PMA. Sounds like a wonderful organization. Love the way that you sum up what PMA does with network, learn, lead. That's probably the most concise I've heard from an association in some time. Thank you for being our guest, Bill. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you, Bill. It's been my pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. And we'll be back Manufacturing after Talk Radio break. will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. It's no secret that manufacturers are having trouble filling jobs. Now, with ThomasNet's new job board, help is on the way. For manufacturers, ThomasNetJobs.com is the go-to resource to recruit new talent. Post your jobs and get in front of thousands of potential employees. Or, if you're looking for a new job or you want to reinvent yourself, ThomasNetJobs.com offers exciting opportunities from the shop floor to the C-suite in supply chain management, engineering, production, or sales. Remember... ThomasNetJobs.com. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we are back at FabTech in Atlanta, Georgia, with Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we have another guest coming on who is from another association that we've been anxious to hear from. And Lou, would you introduce our guest, please? Sure. Uh, Monica Farr of the American Welding Society. Uh, uh, Monica and I spoke uh, a few days ago. Uh, Monica, welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, tell us about the American Welding Society. Well, the American Welding Society is one of the show partners here at Fabtech. Uh, we are a very large association uh, with about 70,000 members. And we uh, obviously are focused on supporting the technology and advancement of welding and uh, allied processes. Uh, we also have a foundation, a 501c3 foundation that's a part of uh, our organization. And through our foundation, we give away scholarships for students as well as have a focus on workforce development. I'm imagining that you, like many associations, you're a society, I guess that's a close cousin, have a series of things that you offer your members. What would those things be? Well, as a society, uh, we do write a lot of codes and standards uh, for welding okay. across the country. Uh, we also offer certifications for individuals. Uh, certified Welding Inspector is probably the most well-known uh, certification that the American Welding Society uh, grants. Mm -hmm. um, we also have, of course, member services like other associations would, uh, you know, in um, the area of insurance and, and other offerings that we can, that we can provide for our members. Um, and we also have an educational um, arm where we have online courses uh, where we offer seminars that help prepare individuals to sit for certification uh, exams. Okay, and I, I know that Lou was speaking at Maven with you or someone else about the shortage of welders in America and it's not getting better. What's happening, Monica? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'm, I'm sure your, uh, some of your previous uh, guests have spoken about um, the need for more individuals in manufacturing as a whole. Uh, we are seeing that trend in welding where a lot of students are pursuing four-year degrees. Um, they are not pursuing the, the trades. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a lot of vocational programs necessarily in the high schools anymore that right. give them the opportunity to learn about the trades. And so in welding, we actually uh, have some research that's projecting about a 350,000-person shortage by 2024. Significant shortage. Is there anything going on to, to try to ameliorate that very large gap? Absolutely. And uh, as I mentioned briefly at the beginning, through our AWS Foundation, we are focused on workforce development, which mainly means recruiting that next generation right. um, of welder into the industry. And then also um, through the scholarships that we offer, we are trying to help uh, encourage more young people to pursue education in uh, in welding and, and help fill that need for the future. Is welding, and, and this is my gray hair perception, so I'm not one of the millennials, you know, my gray hair perception is, is welding is uh, dark, dirty, and dangerous. Is it, isn't it more up-to-date, modern than that, driven by machines? Absolutely. It's very automated. It's very highly technical. And in fact, the welders of today need to be able to do more than just weld. They need to um, understand material properties. They need to be able to work with automated systems. They need to understand um, programming. So there's a lot more to welding today. We need a much higher skilled individual, um, which is exciting because then we, we, we're finding that we're able to attract young people when they understand that there's more to it. Um, you know, than than just laying a bead, if you will. <laughs> right, right. The the heavy helmet with the lens and the, 
the, the rod and the, the torch, and that's about all they see, even in some commercials. So I'm excited to hear that a lot of what's going on, and, and we see it in, in other places where it is very technology-driven. Uh, I can remember a scene in the James Bond movie where they were laying a very long pipeline, and there was a cart flying through the center of it, welding the, the seams of the pipes together, all automated. Now, that may actually be real, for all I know. <laughs> yeah, in fact, um, we were having a discussion yesterday that a lot of what you see in those superhero movies you know, it's starting to become reality. Uh, you know, laser welding is pretty amazing to see itself. Um, it's very, you know, you, the laser stands back off of the uh, the metal. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, that that light can can weld that material together, it's, it's pretty amazing. Now, what hall is welding in here at the Georgia World Congress Center? We are in Hall C, okay. which I have to admit, it's quite a walk. It took me a while to get over here. <laughs> that has to be three-quarters of a mile because yeah. I have walked Building B. <laughs> Absolutely. What will people see if they go over to Building C? They will see a lot of those highly automated uh, and robotic welding systems um, that we, we kind of touched on. They'll see laser welding. Um, they'll see some really advanced systems. Um, personal protective equipment that is state-of-the-art. Um, mm -hmm. Some really exciting exhibits over in Halsey. And what do you do for the Society? I'm actually focused uh, in the American Welding Society Foundation, and I head up our workforce development activities. Uh, so we ah. do have some pretty significant initiatives underway to help spread the word, if you will, about how exciting careers in welding can be and to excite that next generation. Uh, into the industry. What is, what is your uh, internet uh, URL address for those who might want to uh, take a look closer at what you're doing? And I, I would presume that you do show some of this uh, technology from in your website. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The Society's website is uh, www.awsexam.org. Um, if you want to learn more about the workforce development activities and uh, the exciting careers available in welding, that URL is careersinwelding.com. Okay. Uh, Tim? Well, now that part that you work in the foundation is, you said, the educational area. I'm, I'm particularly keen on kind of getting as much out of you on that subject as we can because that's really where the skills gap is. I mean, the gray hair is retiring out the baby boomers. Uh, the 18 to 32-year-olds have got to come in and fill that gap. In between that time, we really have had a birth dearth where there was almost negative population growth. So that's not going to be filled with the 33 to whatever-year-olds. Uh, your particular foundation is doing online classes, uh, uh, classes in schools. What's going on? Well, actually, one of the most exciting and probably uh, visible uh, activities we have underway, we have a 53-foot careers in welding trailer, a mobile exhibit that mm. travels the country. Uh, it's on the road 20 weeks a year. We go to very large events. Uh, we've found the most successful events for us are, are events like state fairs, uh, agriculture shows, wow. farm shows. Um, the FFA, the Future Farmers of America show, where there's 60,000 high school students that have an agricultural background and an agricultural interest uh, in mm. attendance. 
those are the type of events we take this exhibit to. Uh, this exhibit has, uh, I think, 1,400 square foot of, a, of exhibit space inside, and it's an opportunity to learn about the many exciting, uh, not only careers that are available in welding through hands-on exhibits, but also the uh, industries that employ people with welding backgrounds, how varied they are. Uh, we have some virtual reality welding simulators on this exhibit, so you can try your hand at virtually welding. Ah. <laughs> uh, it's like playing a video game, so for young people, it's very familiar and exciting. Um, you get a score at the end, so you can uh, uh -oh. get into a little competition with your friends <laughs> to see who is the better welder. Oh, that sounds like some exciting stuff. I'm not coming over to try it because I'm not sure how well I would do it welding. Uh, the You said a welder today needs to know more than just how to, to make a bead. Uh, and particularly interested in some of those other things you mentioned, metallurgy. What are some of the other things a welder needs to know? Because it, it's, uh, you know, making a bead sounds like an easy thing to do. I've seen some bad beads, so uh, it's easy to do one wrong. But what are some of the other areas, Monica? Well, absolutely. You mentioned metallurgy. Right. Um, mathematics is very important for the welder. So having a foundation of math skills certainly is, is critical. Um, there, are, there are a lot of automated systems and robotics that need programming. Hmm. So there are uh, certainly in, we see an associate degree program today, a focus on robotic systems and programming and automation. Uh, in addition to that metallurgy, there's, they need to have an understanding of codes and standards. Uh, it's, depending on the industry that they're working in, they have a standard that they have to be uh, uh, capable of welding too. Mm -hmm. um, inspection of welds is, is very critical in a lot of industries today. So there's a host of other um, areas of focus in all of our uh, degree programs, both at the associate degree level and at the baccalaureate degree level, more than just welding. From some of the other guests that we've had uh, today, as well as uh, our past shows, uh, the income levels that we've uh, heard from different industries, uh, uh, we've heard from Texas Manufacturing, where salaries uh, averaging at around $79,000, and U.S. Uh, it's in the 60000 in manufacturing. Uh, what does a, a seasoned welder earn today? Well, that is a very tough question to answer. You know? um, anecdotally, we hear a lot of what you just said. There right. are salaries in the six figures uh, for welders, especially the welders who um, might be more of a project welder that, that uh, go on site and, and help construct um, mm -hmm. a facility, and then they move to another part of the country. So they're kind of those road warrior welders, if you will. Mm -hmm. We're talking six six figures there. Um, in looking at the Department of Labor's um, Bureau of Labor Statistics data, um, the median uh, earning for welders is about $30 an hour. Um, I don't have data that, that I can quote beyond, right. beyond the, the Department of Labor, but anecdotally we hear salaries much higher than, than what that right. reflects. Right. Well, that's certainly something that the youngsters should be uh, looking at. Uh, that lawyers were into the six figures <laughs> also. Right, right. Where does a welder start in terms of compensation? And I'm sure that may be all over the board too, but 
That is all over the board. At a, at a smaller job shop, um, it might be in the $20 range an hour. Um, at a larger uh, corporation or in a more highly skilled and, and technical related field, uh, industry field, it could be considerably higher than that. So it is kind of all over the board. And Monica, what are the most, if you will, precision welds, kind of precision welding that you've seen that people wouldn't think of as common? You, know, you look at welding, and, and I walk down a flight of stairs, and there's a handrail there, and you can see that that's been welded, and you go, oh, that must be welding. But there must be some really precise things that are done in welding that we don't readily perceive as being welded parts. Well, certainly in, in the electronics industry, um, a lot of the, the laser welding is extremely precise and extremely micro-small. Um, some of that is, is pretty pretty amazing work, and um, and so I, I think I would say when I think of welding, I wouldn't think of necessarily the small electrical um, parts industry, but but or even the, the medical field um, where you have equipment, uh, medical device equipment. Some of that welding is extremely precise and extremely at the micro level. Mm -hmm. Now I know my co-host here hails from the forging industry. And All Metal is in Forge Group, which is, which is the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. They do very large parts, and they do very large weldments. Uh, Lou, maybe you can share about some of the weldments that end up after your company forges the part. Well, we do that uh, outside. We forward it on to uh, either customers and or vendors of ours to... Uh, piece together uh, a, a weldment or a fabrication. Uh, usually those are not micro welds. No. Those are the big ugly suckers. So, <laughs> so that's not uh, that's not getting to thirty, forty dollars an hour rate. I'm sure. Now, is some of that Lou done offshore, uh, oil well kind of stuff? Or all those downhole uh, things welded? I, I don't believe so. I think most of that is done here. Uh, I know Texas, there's a lot of that. Uh, it doesn't make sense to ship parts from here to China to have it welded and bring it back. Uh, oh, I was actually talking Oscar oil rigs. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's uh, a lot of weldments that are that are on the on the rigs. Uh, on the platforms as well as the uh, the ship uh, the ship rigs. Uh, and Monica, this has to be huge in automotive because I you know I see the assembly lines or at least snippets of it in movies where you see okay the sparks all over and and uh, things moving by quickly. What's happening in automotive and welding? You know, I actually worked in the automotive industry for 13 years, and I, um, I ran the body shop at an assembly plant oh. uh, for a couple of years. And I had 750 robots in oh. the body shop, <laughs> many of them welding robots. Pretty amazing. I mean, most of, most of that uh, in the auto industry is very automated. Mm -hmm. um, we had a lot of inspectors who were looking at, at the welds. We had a lot of machine repairmen and welders who could help keep those robots running and could fix, you know, the equipment. That That's that's really the focus for the, uh, for the personnel because those mm -hmm. robots are doing a lot of that welding. And they show up every day. 
and they show up every day. That's right. Well, certainly that is important in in terms of and something that maybe the younger generation overlooks is that it's more than just a the welding job itself. It's to understand what the robot is and isn't doing and how to tweak it or tweak the program to get the right result. Absolutely right. There, There is, in addition to the need for welders, as we talked about already, there is a need for welding technicians and welding engineers and welding inspectors as we look forward uh, between now and 2024 for those very same reasons. You know, the, the welding engineers today are largely retiring. We need to replace them, and we need young people with these advanced skills as, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned, so that they can they can work in those very highly automated system environments. They can talk with the welders and uh, and understand parameters and changes that need to be made to the system. And that's certainly important because I know in in general, in whether it's in business or in manufacturing, you have those folks who've been doing it for 30, 40 years, and some of the things that they have run across in a working with uh, you know two particular metals, the chemistry is slightly different. Uh, they've long since forgotten because they don't run across it every day. But it's going to be the younger generation who either has to learn from the gray hair, the easy way, or learn it the hard way when the job they're doing goes bad. Uh, I, you know, there's this huge transfer of knowledge concern as the gray hairs move out of, of welding and out of manufacturing. Right. So we're trying to do what we can in the area of getting the word out, Mm -hmm. uh, in the area of supporting those students with scholarships. We give away a half million dollars a year in scholarships to help students complete their education in welding technology and welding engineering so that we can get them into the industry today before those, those seasoned individuals start to retire. Right, right. That will certainly be the, the challenge going forward. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners about AWS in the few minutes that we have left here of the show? Well, I think one thing I, I would like to share, we've um, made some significant efforts with the Boy Scouts oh, uh-huh. of America, and that's another um, real opportunity for us to reach out to a market that has some interest in working with their hands and, and getting dirty and doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, we established a welding merit badge in 2012 oh, with the Boy Scouts. It is actually uh, in the top 10 of all, well, of all merit badges today in terms of the number yeah. of young men who are receiving the badge, completing the requirements mm-hmm. and receiving the badge. In fact, in the two and a half years it's been out there, um, we have awarded nearly 15,000 scouts with a welding merit badge. So that's exciting some young men Impressive. to think a little bit further and, and to pursue perhaps uh, some further education in welding and, you know, make a career out of it. Now, you are the uh, you're the head of AWS? No, 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 you're, no. You're, no. I'm sorry. I work uh, within the foundation. Okay. So we have an executive director of the American Welding Society, and then we have an executive director of our foundation, and I work for the foundation director. Okay. Um, nonetheless, and I'll be slightly sexist here, a female in uh, welding, and where I'm going with this is you reached out to the Boy Scouts, 
have you reached out to the girls? We have reached out oh, to the cool. girls. As a, matter of, as a matter of fact, this Saturday in Chicago, I'm going to be conducting an introduction to welding workshop with a group of 30 uh, young ladies. And they're going to explore welding, the, the, the topics of welding, by welding with frosting, believe it or not. We're oh. going to weld graham crackers together with frosting, and they're going to learn a bit about welding that way. Um, yes, we have reached out to the Girl Scouts. We don't have a national program with them. Mm -hmm. We are working with uh, specific councils around the country, trying to kind of get our feet in the door. And uh, through the success at those individual councils, then we hope to to take it to more of a national level and, and establish a welding badge or patch, if you will, with the Girl Scouts. Okay, so we had Rosie the Riveter in World War II. <laughs> now we need Wendy the Welder. We've got to kick <laughs> off this program so that we can have Wendy the Welder and the Girl Scouts and the, you know, the millennials that fill in these job gaps can be women. They're, they're just as competent as men in, in that environment. So I'd love to see that. Absolutely. And I almost hate to say this, but some... Some people will tell you that women almost make better welders. <laughs> <laughs> Attention to detail, the eye-hand coordination, the patience. Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't make a good welder. I have zip patience. So. <laughs> well, Wendy, we certainly appreciate you being on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We appreciate you taking the time to kind of explain what the, the society is. I, I have one more question for you. Is there much difference? between society and association other than syntax? No, no. We are uh, we work uh, very closely. You mean with the society and the foundation? Is the, is a society and an association largely the same thing? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay. I think it's just a matter of uh, which which name they chose that sounded better with the rest of their name, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Great. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio. And if we have uh, some questions in the future, and I would love to follow up on, on Wendy the Welder and see if that ever comes to fruition, uh, we'd like to have you back on the show. Well, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me, and I hope you all enjoy the show. Uh, make sure you come over to Hall C. We're going to have to get on either our bicycles or our golf carts to come over to see. Cause Wear it's your high. walking shoes, <laughs> absolutely. Monica, thank you very much for participating with us today, and uh, good luck with the show, and uh, good luck to America in finding more welders. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. And we're going to uh, uh, wrap up uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio for today because Lou and I are excited to jump off the air here and and uh, head over to some of the other exhibits and see what they're doing on the show floor. So thank you for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.